and this is The Road Taken. And we were maybe a minute or two late. Oh, God, I'm going to get this right one of these days. We and and we're, we're moving around chairs because we're, we're figuring that <laughs> we'll have it together sooner or later. So I love that song so much. I live it up now and you can live it down later. I think this is my new theme song. James Lee, I'm coming for you. I'm loving that song. I wanted to talk to you a little bit up first, uh, up top first alone. Um, to uh, share some good news. It's been a crazy time for um, the Abelsons for the last couple of weeks. Uh, Samantha's going back to do her senior year at NYU in three years, I wanna say, about my girl. And uh, we've been trying to get her an apartment uh, 3,000 miles away, which it turns out is a really difficult thing to do and it doesn't really work. So, um, but anyway, we just, um, we just sealed the deal and she's gonna be living in Brooklyn Heights. Um, on Clark Street and um, uh, with her very good friend Emily and um, life is good. The decision was made. Chris Junta, I owe you big time. Thank you for the help at the St. George because I really appreciate it. So now when I go to New York next week, um, I can rock and roll and have a good time. We can have a good time, have a good vacation. And uh, I'll be coming to you live from New York um, with Liberty DeVito, who is the birthday boy. Happy birthday, Liberty. Lib, I love you. Uh, happy birthday to Donnie Most, too. Um, anyway, Lib will be with me on, um, when is it? It's gonna be Wednesday, August 22nd. Next week, here in LA still, Jack McGee, who just made his Broadway debut in midlife. Uh, very exciting. Um, Jack was in my number one favorite show of all time on television, Rescue Me, um, which very close to my heart. I love Jack. Maybe we'll get him to sing for us a little bit. He did last time. Um, and then also we'll have a surprise for you on the 29th. Coming back on September 5th to LA, um, gonna sort of launch a rebrand of this. New name, new wingman, it's gonna be happening. Um, but anyway, uh, I wanna thank a few people um, who I could not do this without. I wanna thank my girl, Samantha Abelson, behind the camera tonight. Thank you, Samantha, I love you. You're welcome, I love you too. <laughs> um, and I wanna thank Rick Smolke, who, is, uh, who has sponsored The Road Taken from day one and Women Who Write from its inception and has made all these very cool things. And my, 
my my cards and my bookmarks and um, he does all this stuff and he's a printer quick impressions in Chicago and if you ever need anything done and James Lee who has 33 CDs um, if you the next time you need liner notes or anything like that done Rick does, has never charged a musician to do this stuff for him. That's the, kind of, that's the kind of guy he is. He's a pretty extraordinary man, and I love him dearly. Thank you, Rick. I'm so grateful for you. And Quick Impressions are, are my, my guardian angels. Rick's my guardian angel. I also want to thank my hairdresser, Nicole Venables of the Ruby Begonia Salon, and she has these fabulous products. Um, and she's gonna have even more fabulous products with really like crazy names, like the kind of stuff, like very provocative, like I use. Um, you can find her stuff on uh, Family Beauty Supply, friend, sorry, oh, friends, friends and family, friendsbeautysupply.com and at the Ruby Begonia Salon. Um, dot com and it's Nicole Venables and she is fantastic. She also tresses the, the um, uh, Megan Mullally on Will and Grace. She also does um, what's the name of, of uh, Matt LeBlanc's show? Man with a Plan. She also does the hair with, for Man with a Plan and um, with my own Craig Ames, my fabulous stylist who did not pick out this outfit by the way. Um, I don't know if he'll think of it. He'll have to tell me. But anyway, um, I'm just, uh, I'm feeling very grateful and um, excited to, uh, to welcome someone who has been really important uh, in my years in LA. Um, James Lee Stanley first uh, did Women Who Ride Here in the Living Room years ago. He then came when um, Michael Nesmith, or Mike, as those of you who are Monkey fans know him, the Nez, who I wanna give a shout out to Nez. I'm thinking of you, sending love. I'm so glad he's healing, he's had some, a little health a big health issue, but he's um, coming through it and doing great, and he's gonna be back on the road with Mickey and um, out there uh, doing his own thing also. And um, anyway, so Nez had uh, women who write up at um, the Henry Miller Library in Big Sur. God, I don't even know how many years ago that was. It was about seven years ago, I think. Wow. And um, James Lee came up and sang. It was an amazing day. Carol Tunador, Ali Willis, um, Kathy Ladman, um, God, I don't know. There was a lot. There were a lot of us up there. It was a fantastic day, and Mo Gaffney, um, and then James came back into the living room again recently. James has played stadiums, arenas, everything. He's opened for Bonnie Raitt. He's opened for Stephen Wright for like three years uh, for Robin Williams. And for maybe the man we, sh we, we shan't mention, somebody took me to task on Twitter for mentioning the one we shall not name, Bill Cosby. But when he was a good guy, when he was somebody that we... When we thought he was a good guy. When we th oh, that's right. He was never a good guy. He was never a good guy. When we thought he was a good guy, when he fooled us. But fool us no more. But, um, and, and James has collaborated with Peter Tork, another monkey. We have yeah. monkey history. He collaborated with my old good friend, Cliff Everhart. He's yeah. collaborated with lots of people I don't know that we're gonna hear about. And I'm really excited to have him here. And um, please help me welcome my good friend, James Lee Stanley. Yay! I love you. Come sit with me. me. It's my pleasure. It's my thrill. Okay, James. So before we get to, you know, I, I, was t I was at physical therapy this afternoon, which is kind of why I'm a little famished, because I missed my appointment, ended up running there right before you came, and yeah, it was kind of, uh, my head was, uh, my head wasn't in the game. 
And uh, so I got to get my head in the game. So, um, but anyway, I was telling them about you and they say, how is it possible for someone to have 33 CDs and have played with all of these people and been in arenas and everything and not be a household name? And I said, you know what? Not everybody has to be a household name to do what they love, do it brilliantly, make a living at it their whole life, never have to take a day job, yeah. be able to do what they love, to be on the road, to play clubs, to play with to play with other musicians. I have seen you jam with Buzzy Linhart and just all kinds of crazy people. That is uh, so thrilling, and the people that you've played with in your life, and the audiences that you've played to, and anyone who has ever heard you, never forgets your name. Oh, um, nice. So I want to go back and talk about how this happened for you because you've been doing this a long time, but you. Okay, so you're a little kid. Where'd you grow up? Grew up uh, back east, born in Pennsylvania, and uh, then we moved to Africa. Wait, why? Then we came back. Uh, why, why were you in Africa? I was a boy, and my father moved there, and so I, what, what, I went to. What, well, yeah, but what was his vocation? <laughs> uh, at the time, uh, there was a, a war going on, the Korean War, mm -hmm. and uh, he was in the Navy, and they recalled, well, he actually was out of the Navy. Okay. But they recalled him for the Korean War, mm -hmm. and then they sent him to Africa because... That's the way governments work, folks. Ah. Because the Korean War was over here, so they sent him to Africa. Because <laughs> they needed him desperately. <laughs> you know, so we, li we lived there for about 18 months, and I came back. Uh, How old were you when you lived in Africa? Five, uh, five to six. Do you have a memory? I, well, you know what? They made a bunch of eight millimeter movies, so I'm not sure whether I have memories or, or movies of memories. Uh, I don't know, but I, I do remember a lot about it. I remember seeing the uh, Medina, which was the... Uh, the walled city within Rabat, where uh, we were. What city did you? Where did you live? We lived uh, near Rabat in a place called Port Leoti. Okay. And we uh, we flew into Gibraltar. Uh, no, I actually flew out of Gibraltar, and we landed in Casablanca. Oh wow! And uh, and I remember seeing a camel at sunrise, and I I thought my head would explode. It was so fantastic. Wow! You know? But anyhow, the Medina is a walled city within Rabat. It's mm -hmm. in it's in every city. The, the Medina is essentially the walled city within the city. Okay. The old original city, mm -hmm. and. It's like, wow. Yeah, it was a dangerous place, and, and uh, children could not go in there. And was that folklore? Do you think that was true? All I know is that I didn't go in there, but I've been a candy ass all my life in a row. Because so <laughs> nice. you know, death is oh. ugly. It's ugly, you know. Yeah, death is ugly. Yeah, it's ugly. We don't. We don't want to. <clears throat> so we came back, and I went to school, and uh, and I thought I was going to work for Walt Disney because I used to do nothing but art. So my plan was to come to California and be an artist, and then. Uh, how how old were you when you were having that dream? Eight, nine. Okay, and and, and did I, that. And I drew, and I drew all the Disney characters, and I, I, I won art contests and did all that oh, stuff. Oh wow! And then when I was twelve, I was uh, given a ukulele, and I learned who, the song. Who gave, who gave it to you? My uncle, my uncle Dick, gave me, and my grandfather was a musician. He played everything. Uh huh. And, and we, the family gatherings were always after dinner. The guitars came out, the piano came out, the trombone came out, you know, just all this music. So I grew up around a lot of music. Were your parents musical? Uh, my mother always sang great, and my father wrote poetry all mm -hmm. of his life, so we, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I got those two things from them. But in any event, uh, I learned to play the ukulele, mostly because there was this girl that, uh, <laughs> I, I, she loved the song Tragedy by Thomas Wayne, so I learned this song and sang it to her, Aww. and it was like, it worked, huh? It was happening. <laughs> Everything that happened to you, two 12 year olds. You know, <laughs> we we kissed sitting with, like, with, without our. <laughs> <because> <laughs> yeah. 
What? What? Wait. We, we were kissing on the sofa, but I didn't want to get myself close to her because I was... I was Twelve. I was enthused. Oh. You know, and, and I thought, and I was embarrassed to be enthused, so I was like kissing her like this, you know? <laughs> Silly stuff. Anyhow, when I was uh, 16, uh, my sisters, I taught my sisters to sing harmonies, and we sang together all the time for the fun of it, family things. Younger, older? They're they're all younger than me. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we did this show. We signed. Oh, wait, I know. We got invited to play uh, the, the telethon. Uh, Jerry Lewis. Jerry Lewis's telethon. Wow! How did that happen? Who knows? Uh, I, I know you're, you're in L.A. No, no, we're in Virginia. You're in Virginia. Yeah, we. You moved. get invited from Virginia to be on the Jerry Lewis telethon. There was a telethon. Being they had the local. Yeah. Uh huh. And uh, and Jane Mansfield was there. And, wow. And so I, we, my sisters and I sang and. Uh, that would get you enthused. And then they, you know Sorry. what? Yeah, I, I, I remember being enthused. By the <laughs> Gene Mansfield, quite a hot number there. And then, uh, then someone saw us, and uh, it was Sheriff Davis who had a radio show on a country station, and he and he got us on the, the Grand Ole Opry. So we, we wow. sang. Uh, matter of fact, funny story. We were we came to the Grand Ole Opry. It was happening in Norfolk. It was a traveling Grand Ole Opry. Uh -huh. And and uh, I came in there, and I never I knew nothing about country music, and I. You know, I, I just walked in with my guitar and my sisters, and, and we're standing by the side. Wait, how old are you? I'm 16. Okay. Yeah, 16 or 15. And, uh, and this guy comes up and he says, uh, here, give this telegram to George Jones. And I'd heard of John Jones, Manhunter from Mars, because I had the comic books, but George Jones I'd never heard of, who was a famous, famous country My father star. loved him. Yeah. And he, he was great, white light and all. In, in any event, uh, I take this telegram and I walk on stage and I say, is there anybody here named George Jones? <laughs> <laughs> and this guy in this white suit comes up and goes, Give me that, you little shit. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and that was my introduction to showbiz. Were you embarrassed? Uh, no, I was amazed oh, that some guy called me a little shit. I didn't even oh. know him. <laughs> and that turned out I was George Jones, of course. That's hysterical. So then we got a record deal with, uh, with SPQR. Oh no, the Grand Records, which was had the. Uh, I said, hey, 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 yeah. You know, remember that guy? Yeah. Uh, what was that? It sounds from. I, I know that uh, I know that. Down in New Orleans and. Uh, okay. Oh dear, I can't believe I, I can't remember his name. He had a couple of huge hits, and this was a local label. We got on the label, we made some records. The guy told me to write songs. Mm -hmm. I wrote awful songs for him. <laughs> and, uh, and then I kept writing. Yeah. And then I, and I kept playing, and, uh, and because. And folk music was so huge then. I, you know, I was playing acoustic guitar and I was singing all around. And when I was six, I've, I've just never done anything since then uh, but sing and play, except when I was in the Air Force. I was a Chinese linguist in the Air Force because I couldn't get out of it. But other than that, uh, I was. I just you got drafted? No, no, in no. the Air Force. I, no, no. See, I wanted to go to college. And, right, uh, you don't get drafted into the Air Force. No, yeah. we, we, we were uh, poor, so there was no way I could go to college. But if I went in the service for four years, then I could get the GI Bill for four years. Ah, and then they tested sorry. me and ended up going to the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, studying Chinese. Okay, that's crazy right there. So you, you were fluent in Chinese? I, I never thought so, but, uh, but I, that, that's what they called me. You know, Chinese linguist, and I went to Taiwan, and I lived, we were wow. building an air base there. And I sang and wrote songs, and I wrote, you know, I think I wrote, I tried to write one song a week, so I wrote 52 songs while I was there. I still sing a couple of them, actually. And that was... Uh... I'm going to take a sidebar and just say that we're going to come back to this. But I don't know, Samantha, can you see this? That 
sitting in front of James Lee um, are these, his... These are some of my albums. It, there's a several on LP. I think there's, there's some that are on LPs that I didn't manufacture. These are just the CD versions. But these are... But they represent 33 different el albums that James Lee has. Uh, yes, just my, my wife calls it a triumph of, of a hope over feedback. <laughs> it's 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 a that's an astounding. It's a body of work. That's, that's an astounding body. And, and of work. this album, by the way, this photograph that right here was taken in this room, which is crazy. When uh, when Sheila and I did uh, did Women Who Write, Sheila Escobedo, Sheila Eve, for those of you. Who, Fantastic person and uh, fantastic percussionist. And as, a, as 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 I recall, either Sheila played the spoons or something from back here while and, and we I were. And I tossed her a shaker. You and you tossed her a shaker. Right. Happened. when we came in. The, uh, the her handler said, no, "Don't no. talk to her and don't ask her to play anything." And I said, <laughs> "Fine." So I started playing. And she starts playing the spoons. I tossed her a shaker. <laughs> and, where it happened, you know? and then, as I recall, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, she kind of moved up and sat with you. Yes, yes. By, before the end of your your, she, your set, I actually uh, I hired her. She's in San Francisco, and I hired her. Or actually, Oakland. I hired her to play on my. Uh, what is that? Um, racing. Yeah, that was before. A midnight you did radio, this, right? Oh, oh, it was. It was this was in 1980. That's what I thought, yeah. Yeah, uh, Sheila played on this album in 1980. So now that was before she was with Prince, yes. She wasn't with anybody. She was just a percussionist. How did, you, how did you know of her? Uh, well, I was in San Francisco, and I studied a percussionist, and there was a, uh, there was a bass player named Matt Cridlin who plays on this album, mm -hmm. and he played with the Hoodoo Rhythm Devils. And he said, boy, there's a great percussionist from Oakland, and her father is, uh, uh, you know, Escobedo. Uh, yeah, he he was he's huge. He's, yeah, he's a yeah. big famous percussionist, Latin percussionist there. I think he played with uh, Santana then. I think he did. Yeah. In any event, uh, he said, "Well, his daughter's really good, and you can afford her." And, and so, <laughs> <laughs> so I called her, and she came running and played her. Yes, she was so delightful. What a percussionist she is, and and what, so so Sheila E came here. How, I don't know how many years ago that was. Four, three, four years ago, yeah. and um, yeah, her people were like, "Okay, she's not gonna play." I, I tried to get her. To do a uh -huh. whole thing with you. She no, was, she's not going to play. Don't ask her to play. And then as you started your set, she just started like doing things. And I don't know, I handed her something. She's musical. You know? And she just started playing it. And then, yeah, she worked her way up to the front before too long. And that yeah. was that was pretty fun. Um, it was great fun. It was great to see her because I had literally hadn't seen her since 1980. <laughs> and I gave her a copy of the album. Although, you, you can't read it, you know, once you take an, this was an LP, once you take an LP and make it, squeeze it down to a CD. You, Everything you, is very small. You can't read, if you've ever, you know the thing about self-abuse, I is true, because I can't read any of this. So. <laughs> well, well, I just want to say that Rick Smokey's out there at Quick Impressions, and if you need something redone so oh, that, it's, that it's legible. I'm playing Chicago. Uh, on, and he knows that, and he's planning to be there. I was going to say, yeah, we'll make sure that, okay. We'll, we'll, yeah, you, you have to meet uh, Rick. Jake, really? we're gonna we're gonna hook you up. You got Yeah, he was just telling me yesterday that uh, you're gonna be in Chicago in two. You're gonna be around him in two places. I think. I think I think I'm playing. Uh, uh, I'm playing a private party Wednesday in Milwaukee, and then I'm playing Shank Hall in Milwaukee. Great room, uh, run by a fantastic guy named Peter Jest. He's had everybody there. Everybody famous plays this little club. It's wow. Really and uh, and then on Friday I'm playing uh, in Rockford, Illinois, at the. Just Goods, which is a, we're doing a charity thing for for them, and then s Saturday in uh, Fort Atkinson, cultural hub of Wisconsin, at the Cafe Carp, one of my favorite places to play. And Sunday, he, he's in Addison. Oh, 
Okay, well, okay. Illinois. Yeah, in that case, he's going to uh, probably go to the show on Sunday. Okay. I'm doing a Sunday for the Ch Chicago Underground on Sunday. It's all on the, my website, jamesleestanley.com. Okay, so how many dates a year approximately do you still do, James? Uh, probably a hundred. That's a lot. That's that's a third of the, the year. Well, I mean, you're I, playing. But I but I promised my wife I would never never be gone more than I was home. So nice. the most the most I could be. Well, this is my third wife. I'm catching on. You know. But <laughs> well, you guys have been together a while. How long have you been together? Since 1984. Get out. Is that true? Yeah. Well, third one's the charm, huh? I have something to look forward she's, to. She's very special. Oh, she is. I've met her. She's a lovely, beautiful yeah. woman. Yeah, and a solid, she's solid, you know. She's solid as a rock. I love her. 84, how many years is that? That's 30? 33, I think. Wow. That's a long time. It That's is. formidable. It is. Actually, when you consider that before that, most relationships I had were like 72, 106 hours. Well, well, I had 20 years with Samantha's dad, and we... Good work, uh, by the way. We did very, we did very fine work yes. together. We, uh, we, we were a worthy... We were a worthy team. Um, okay, so, so. Let's see, where were we? Okay, so now I'm all famished again. Okay, okay. so, so, okay, so, so going so back. So, Grand Opry, Opry, and you, you got had, you got a recording deal from yeah. that. Yeah, and from that I turned, uh, I, I went solo and did a whole bunch of, you know, played solo until the, the Air Force. After I got out of the Air Force, I came down to LA. I went to LACC, and I discovered you could go to you could go to college in California for almost no money in 1969. You could still do it, and I don't want to talk about it because we didn't go that route. But oh, well, I did because that's all there was. Yeah. And I also, by the way, paid off my student loan. So Bank of America, you know. Nice. Hey, I just want to give a shout out to New York, by the way, New York State. You can now go to college. You can now go to a city college in New York for free. If wow. you are a resident. Is this like the Sony things? Uh, this is, I don't... S-U-N-Y, the Sony? I think it's CUNY. It's, it's CUNY. City. Oh, oh city. Oh, okay. Not state, yeah. Okay. yeah. But it's it's a pre, it, it, New York's the first place, I believe, you, to do it. And oh, that's, the that's rest, the way it should be. The rest of the industrialized world recognizes that if you don't educate your youth, they will eat you. <laughs> you know, so you, you Don't really, eat me! So you really have to, you know, you have to educate them because you're going to be handing the world over to them. Yeah. And and if they're wearing a T-shirt that says "I'd rather be a Russian than a Democrat," you have failed. I, okay. I just saw that T-shirt yesterday for the first time Tell on me, Twitter, there's and not, uh, there's not enough spaying going on. Is the problem? People are procreating without checking with me. It's 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 very frightening what's going on out there. Very very frightening. That's why you know that song I just wrote, "Live It Up Now." Yeah, I wrote that because my wife said, "You know, every song you write, it's, it, it's, it's, there's, there's so much rage, there's mm -hmm. doom, there's gloom. So you got to you, you're turning into an asshole. You got to lighten up." Wow. And so I wrote this silly song about, okay, let's just get that fiddle, Nero, and, you know, we'll set fire to Rome and play some music, you know? Well, I think it's, I think it's important to stay, for us to all, try and remember to stay optimistic because it's really easy. I, I mean... Optimistic and active, folks. Uh, yes. Here's the deal. There, there are more people that did not vote than did vote. Mm -hmm. So... Do me a favor. And all the people that threw, threw away their votes, but I'm not going to get started no, on no, that. No, no, not that. Just, I yeah. mean the people that stayed home, because here's what I'm doing. I am volunteering uh, to register people to vote. Nice. I'm also volunteering to drive people to the polls. If you, can, wow. if you need a ride, you email me. And if I'm in your neighborhood, I will take you to the poll. I love that. You know, I love and it. we That's, should all do that. Yes, you know? activism is essential. Are you kidding? It's, it's not a choice it's, anymore. It's the responsibility of a citizen in this country. When I was a kid, we had a class, what was that, civics. We had a class called Civics, and it taught us everything about how the government works 
than what our responsibilities were as a citizen. Did and you so have, they took did you that, have civics about that? No, no they, they took they that don't out. Teach that anymore. They took that out because yeah. too many people were getting involved. <laughs> well, I was marching on Washington at 12 and 13, so yeah. no thank you, but help yourself. Thank you. Um, so, uh, yes. Did you ever uh, see the old man inside of a peanut? What? Did you ever see there's an old man inside of a peanut? Oh, come on, stop. A, a Cossack, look at that. See his little beard and his hat? See the Cossack? No? Beer in the hat. Uh, I, I don't Let me know. find another one. Actually, right. you keep I'll talking. Find a better one. Things. So, <laughs> find, find one who looks okay, more like that one. You can't see that. You're going to have to prove that into Look, the camera. Here's the beard. Okay. See, kids, the beard goes down, the <laughs> hat goes up. All right, wait, wait. You have to bring it close. Let's see if, if they can see this at home. Okay, so explain it, James Lee. Okay. Too close? The beard goes down like, like that, uh, away from it, and there's a little classic hat on. You can see his little nose. You know, uh, you know I'm, 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 I'm sorry, but I'm not seeing it, but, you know, like, I, I don't know. Well, For those of you at home, if you, if you see the bearded man with the whatever, the Cossack with the hat, <laughs> It's easier with, with the ones that haven't been cooked. Uh, with the ones that haven't been cooked? Yeah, when you just open yeah, yeah, your yeah, shell yeah, and yeah, yeah. you can see Okay, yeah. we'll, we'll look. Because this guy's covered in salt, you know what I mean? He's, he, he's like a Cossack uh, margarita, you know. <laughs> or he's a Cossack that's been, has dandruff or has been out in the snow. There yeah. you go. Um, Who's okay. got the snow? <laughs> okay, so so you so you get your first recording, con you go solo. You, you, oh, no, I, you, no, I came down to LA, I went to college. I studied orchestration and arranging. Oh, I was gonna ask you what yes. you studied, okay. And I minored in history, and then, um, and then I got a, a job writing songs for Bones Howe, who was the engineer and producer of uh, the Mamas and Papas. I mean, he was engineering Mamas and Papas, produced um, the, the association, not yeah, the association. Uh, um, oh, wow, oh, the, all right, I know. Fifth Dimension, all these people, Bill Bones was the guy. Okay, so now, this is really important to your story. How did that happen? Because we talk about, on this show a lot, lightning in a bottle, and, uh -huh. and magic happening, and miracles, and being in the right place at the right time, and luck meeting, opportunity meeting, ambition meeting, fortitude, you know. Yeah, here's, the, here's the deal. You have to be utterly prepared so when luck shows up, you can take advantage of it. Yes. And I have, and I was not prepared many, many times. Mm -hmm. I, I can think of pivotal points in my life where if I'd been prepared, I would have a different life. Could you name some, could you give us an example of that? Uh, sure. I, I did a sh show at the Starwood. Okay. I was the opening act put on at the last minute. Mm -hmm. I forget who the headliner was, some piano player. Mm -hmm. But no one came. The room was empty. Wait, where's the Starwood? It, uh, it, it used to be not La Cienega, but uh, west right, side of LA. Yeah, right okay. down, right down from Laurel Canyon and Santa Monica. Okay. Whatever that old street is. Uh, okay. You know that crosses, not Fairfax, but uh, the next one over, Cres not Crescent Heights. Okay. Crescent Heights okay. in Santa Monica. There was a place called uh, uh, the Starwood. I was, as I say, the late. I was the last minute opening act, mm -hmm. and my manager at the time was Jerry Weintraub. Know who he is? Okay, so Jerry and and, and his wife. That's that, a pretty. That that's a singer. pretty high level yes, manager you got yes, there. Yes, it is. Yeah. And uh, and the president of record label came up and signed to uh, an RCA subsidiary called Wooden Nickel. So those two people came with their wives, mm -hmm. and they were the only people in the audience. <laughs> I came out. And I was so embarrassed that there was no audience that I did this very apologetic, stupid show. If I had just done what I do, I believe that they would have seen that. I didn't show them what I did. 
You know what I mean? I was just, I just was embarrassed because no one was there and I took responsibility for it. Not realizing I was the opening act at the last minute and I... It wasn't, had nothing to do with you. It, absolutely nothing to do with me. The other guy was, was right. the owners was. But I took responsibility for it and I kept apologizing for mm. being there. And I, and I blew a chance to demonstrate to a jury how very good I am. Mm. And I, and, was know, that your only chance? Uh, no, no, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But he never came to see me again. Yeah. You know? and, and after 18 months, we, I had a three-year contract, but after 18 months, we, we drifted apart. So. Well, you know, okay, so that's, that's an example of being ready for when luck. Yeah, and there's another thing, too. I used to feel a, a profound responsibility to make certain that if somebody particularly an executive or somebody in power was an asshole, I made sure that he knew it and that he knew I knew it. Are you a Scorpio? Do I know this about yes, you? Yes, yeah, so am I. So, yeah. oh boy, we come from the so same I, So I t it took me, I mean, mm. a double tour Scorpio rising as well. Oh, but yeah. in any event, I, I learned uh, that I was spending a lot of time shooting myself in the foot mm. and, and I stopped doing that. And also at some point, I, uh, oh, I know, I did a compilation album and I recognized when I did this compilation album on my own, that I, I had a, a compositional voice and I had a... Wait, you had a what voice? A compositional voice. When, when I write a song, it um, sounds like I wrote it. Yeah. It doesn't sound like somebody else wrote it. No, it doesn't. You know, and and, uh, and I started realizing that I actually was an artist, which I did not know I was. I thought that everybody else was an artist and, and that I was just one of me, you know? And, and once I learned that, things really opened up because I, I mean, I've written some hits and, and, and I've had, you know. We're going to talk about that. I made some nice money in, through the years, but, but the fact is that I decided to do what I do, whether it made me rich or not. Mm. I thought, you know, I'm actually an artist. I write what I write. I sing the way I sing. I play the way I play. And that's what I'm going to do. And, what, and the, the end of, of my RCA days, they gave me a song. They said, this is a hit song. You have to sing this song. And I said, well, you know what? It doesn't sound like anything that I write. Mm. It's just different, and they said no. But if you get this, if you put this record on, if you put this song on your album, and it's a hit, then you can do whatever you want. And I looked at him and I said, no. If that song becomes a hit, everybody that buys my album is going to hear the other songs that I wrote and go, this is a crap album because they're going to like that song. Mm. I need people to like what I do. I love that. That's how you build a star. That's how you build a career. That's how you build some some self satisfaction in what you do by by. You know, giving to thine own self be true. Yeah, you know, do what you think, do what you want to do, and and uh, and I, I mean, I take I've taken lessons. I mean, three years ago, I took my first guitar lessons. But what? But uh, the point is, is that you you completely self-taught. Absolutely. Samantha taught herself. Yeah. Not so, very good though. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, the point is, you, you you should you don't have to reinvent the wheel. I wish that I'd taken lessons when I was 16, mm. instead of waiting until I was, you know, 68 to take guitar <laughs> lessons. I was four years ago, now I'm 72. You know, 72. That's well, right. you're pretty amazing. We're holding up, aren't we? We're holding up pretty good. Let's get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so, so sing that song. Yeah. Uh, uh, do you want to sing a song? Oh, no, you said I wanted to do two. You want, I'll do whatever yeah, you, you want. You can do a third song. You can do one in the middle. Go ahead, oh. sing us a song. Well, uh... <clears throat> This, I don't want to sing Let's Get Out of Here. Because no, sing, sing whatever you want to sing. Okay, you know what? We were talking politics here. I didn't write this song. Is, this, I, is this the new one? But I was going to. No, I was going oh. to. Oh, I don't know. You, you, you already did the one with the tweeting. Never yeah. mind. So this is, let's see. Uh, Many's the time I've been mistaken. Many times 
Yes, I've often felt forsaken and certainly misused, but I'm alright, alright, just weary to my bones. Still, you can't expect to be bright and bon vivant with a con man on the throne. <laughs> There's a con man on the throne. I don't know a soul who's not been battered. Don't have a friend who feels at ease. Don't know a dream that's not been shattered. Or driven to its knees. But I'm all right, all right. We've lived so well so long. Still, when I think of this road we're traveling on, I wonder what's gone wrong. I wonder what's gone wrong. My soul rose unexpectedly, and looking back down at me, smiled reassuringly. And I dreamed I was flying, and high up above my eyes could clearly see the Statue of Liberty sailing away to sea. Nancy's with us. Alex, Steve, Stuart. Hello, um, Stuart was with us in um, in Big Sur. Oh yes. Yeah, he's Hi, hanging Stuart. out. Um, what a day that was. What a day that was. Um, it's the, it was the first time that that Nez played out in front of an audience in 17 years. Oh, yeah, that's right. And after that, he rejoined the Monkey. Well, first he went out on his own little tour, and then he rejoined the Monkeys, and we were responsible. Wow. We made that happen. I, there's a little fluff on your head. Um, what I love about 
I put that fluff there. Well, I'm sorry. I place of hair. I, I brushed it Maybe away. Maybe a little fluff, you know. <laughs> Maybe they won't notice. <laughs> um, what I love so much about you as a singer-songwriter is, and as a performer, is the sense that you make of every word, which is the the art, the gift of a true artist. I was listening to Randy Newman in the car today, and I was like, you know, when you listen to somebody who really is thinking every word, saying, and you do that, you convey every feeling, every thought behind every word, and that's what makes you an artist for me. Well, I think Randy might influence him. I mean, he's such, he really nails it when he sings it, you know? He does, but, but so do you. I mean, every, just hitting every, like that song just made more sense to me than it's ever made to me before, and I've heard it many times. It's but a great song. It's Paul, a, Paul Simon wrote that song. It's an unbelievable song. I took some liberties with it because of the orange, because of the uh, Putin's <laughs> poodle who's in the White House right now. <laughs> you did great things with it. That was pretty Thank perfect. You. I hope I think you don't Paul, mind, Paul. I think Paul would approve. Um, I'll probably hear from his attorney in the morning. Cease and So, so what I. Um, uh, okay, so let's go back now. So, so you told us a story of something that you would have done differently. Tell us how the magic did, the lightning that did happen, and the magic that did happen. So, you you had that first deal, and you and you worked with. Actually, uh, yeah. I was going to ask you, how did you hook up with that that original producer who? Bizarre, a wonderful uh, dear friend and singer songwriter named Johnny Barnett uh, from Nashville. He wrote a. He wrote Chain of Love, number one record a couple years ago. Anyhow, Johnny was a big fan of mine, and the president of Wood Nickel Records was in Malibu. Mm -hmm. And Johnny was down there, and it, it was beach time, and the cars were stopped. And Johnny climbed on the hood of his car and wouldn't get off unless he listened to this cassette that John had of my music. What? <laughs> and the guy listened to the cassette and they called him. So I got the deal, and I did, but dig this. When I signed that deal, it was a five-year deal, 10 albums. I had to do an album every every six months. Who can turn out that? You can. Who else can turn no, out no, that? No, no, I, I couldn't either. But, but actually, I did okay. The third album, uh, Three's a Charm. Ah, uh, that's the one. That's right. The Three's a Charm was, uh, was on, uh, Billboard magazine used to be a big, maybe it still is, I don't know, a big magazine it for, still for the is. record industry. And they would spotlight several albums each week that they thought, and they spotlighted uh, Queen, Night at the Opera, uh, Loggins and Messina, uh, Albert Lee, and 10 years after. Alvin. Al excuse me, I, yeah, hey Albert, didn't mean you. <laughs> I love Albert. Albert. Hey Albert! Yeah, Alvin, Alvin mm -hmm. Lee, and the, and my album Three is the Charm. Wow. And, uh, and so we thought, well, we're gonna break through, kids. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then I couldn't find the album anywhere. You couldn't buy the album unless you'd slept with me, you know. So I mean, I, I, I admit we sold eleven hundred records, but it nearly killed me, you know. So, oh, God. So uh, 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 when I they came time to do a fourth album, I went to the label and I said, "Listen, you can see what kind of reception we got. I gave you my heart on that record, mm. and uh, and I don't think I have the strength to give you my heart again and have you do absolutely nothing with my music. So I'd like to be let out of the contract." And they said, you know, it's a hard world up there, and you guys, you And I said, I don't care. I'm not going to make an album again that no one can buy. Mm. And so, I have to say that this guy, Jim Golden, president of the Wood and Nickel, was very honorable. Mm. He called me. Then he said, let me think about it. He called the next day. And he said, he said, uh, he, 
Jimmy, I love you, and I, I don't want you to go, but you know, because uh, what I said to him was, if you can look me in the eye and tell me that you gave me your all, like I gave you my all, mm. if you can tell me that, I'll make another record for you. But if you can't tell me that, I'd like you to let me go. And the next day he called up and said, you're out of the contract if you mm. want to be. And mm. I said, I do. And then I never got another deal. I went, uh, and look what you never got another deal, but look what you did without a deal. Yeah. Look what you did without a deal. Yeah, I just decided. Uh, well, after a couple of years, I decided I would make an album on my own, and I and I refinanced my house because I wow. bought a house in Santa Cruz. <laughs> I bought it for thirty-two thousand dollars. I refinanced it for uh, God, one hundred and thirty. What? Hundred something. I don't remember. And I used the money to make an album, and then. Uh, I put it with a, a nefarious fellow at, who said he was with MCA, but it turns out he wasn't, and I never got paid a dime for it, so I lost the house. And I had oh, to, and I, had, no. I came down to LA, and I moved into my friend Charlie Villiers' house. I rented a room in Charlie's house for like $75 a month, and that's all I had. I had a car and a, and a oh guitar my and my clothes and, and, uh, and some art, because I bought some art when I had some money. So you must, I bet you were playing more than 100 gigs a year then. I was, I was playing 300 days a year. Yeah, I and bet. I would come home for two or three days and pick up the bills, pay everything, and go back out. I did that. Also, I, I'd split up with my wife, and I, I used the road as the anodyne, you know, the great, mm. the great. I just went out there and distracted myself from how much my heart hurt, you know. And I got a lot of good songs out of it, too. So, it was a wealth of material. So, okay, so now... So now you got that magical introduction because somebody stood on a car and made somebody listen to your, your yeah. CD, and you met Cass Elliot then, correct? No. Oh? I met Cass Elliot in Virginia Beach when I was 16. Oh, stop. How did that happen? Uh, I, I had a fake idea. I got thrown out of high school. Was she already the Mamas and the Papas? No. No. No, I, I, uh, I got thrown out of high school. I went down to Virginia Beach. I got wait, wait. Why did you get thrown out of high school? Uh, for being outspoken. <laughs> Why do I not find that hard to believe? Yeah, I, know. I, mean, I thought I was, you know, in any event, yeah. uh, I, I, I got a driver's license and I changed the thing so I looked like I was 18. And I got a job working at the Shadows in Virginia Beach, yeah. which is a nightclub. And the people that they had there, they had the Modern Folk Quartet, which is where I met Henry Diltz, who's been a friend of mine for Wow, fantastic uh, photographer, amazing photographer. He took, the, he took many of these pictures. Oh, nice. Uh, anyhow, anyhow I'm, the Modern Folk Quartet played there. Uh, Bud and Travis, if you remember them, California act, but okay. Okay. Uh, who else played there? Oh, oh, uh, the Big Three played there. The Halifax Three played there. You don't know those names perhaps, mm -hmm. but the Big Three was Tim Rose and James Hendricks and Cass Elliott. Wow. And that's where I met Cass. And the week before that was the Halifax Three, which had a guitar player named Zolianovsky, who ended up being the guitar player in the Love and Spoon. Jesus. And the, and the lead singer in the Halifax Three was a guy named Dennis Doherty. Mm. So I met Danny, and I met Sal, and I met Cass. And, and how much later did, did the Mamas and the Papas happen? It had to be right soon. It, it was about 18 months later, because mm -hmm. uh, after that summer, I went back to high school. I finished high school, and then I realized that uh, I really wanted to know music. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, I need to go to college. We were poor. There was no way I could go to college unless I use the GI Bill. Right. So I joined the Air Force and I was in basic training and I was in the day room and the TV was on Dick Clark's Saturday afternoon show. Oh. 
and all of a sudden I hear ba da ba da da da, and I and I look at even when I tell you I get bumps on, and I and I look at the TV and there's Denny and there's Cass, Jesus. and and I met John Phillips but I didn't know him, uh, and there was John Phillips and, and Michelle, I, I also know Michelle, uh -huh. I mean I've had dinner with her, she's a nice lady, uh, but but I didn't I just met them because they were just together then, right? Uh, I mean before. Uh, at the shadows of Virginia Beach, he'd come down, I guess, to see Cass, I don't know. Mm -hmm. In any event, uh, there they were, and I thought, I have made a mistake. The people that I know, that I got high with, that I, that I, you know, played music with, they're, they're on television, and I'm sitting here with a, a skinhead in an Air Force uniform. <laughs> you know? And I've got four years of this left, you know? So that was a, that was a pretty rude thing. But when I did get to LA after the Air Force, Bizarre. I'm in college, and there's this delightful woman. She's really talented, and she's just lovely and fun, and I really like her. And uh, and she's married, and, and I'm married, so we're just friends, you mm -hmm. know. And and she and her husband, Russell, come over. It's Russell Conkle. Aww. But Russell was playing with a band called uh, Things to Come. He wasn't famous or anything. And the girl was Leah Conkle, mm -hmm. who was Cass Elliott's sister. Oh, and, I didn't that. I, yeah. Maybe I did know that. So, yeah, yeah. so we're in college and we're talking mm -hmm. and, and uh, oh, I know what happened. She said, come over to the house. I'm staying with my sister. And I said, okay. And I go up, <laughs> and I go up to Woodrow Wilson and it's Cass. And I come in and Cass goes, young Jim. You know? like, and, and, and so I reconnected with Cass. And then Cass actually paid, it was a studio called TTG. And Cass paid for the first recording session I ever had. She, she set it up at uh, TTG in, uh, in Hollywood. And you stayed friends with her all through her life, throughout her life, didn't you? Oh well, I mean, you know, I mean, I, yeah. yeah, I wasn't. I mean, she didn't suggest I join Crosby, Stills and Nash, so <laughs> so I, I don't know how much of a friend I really. Oh, you know what? She did. She was a great uh, connector. You know. Was she? Yeah. She she really put a lot of, you know. I mean, she called, she called Graham, when when David and and, uh, and Stephen were there at her house, and she said, "You have to come over here." And meet oh, stop! Here. She's the one that. She's the one that created Crosby, Stills, and Nash. She put the three of them together. That's insane. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And and the story Graham tells is really. Uh, I've only wow. met him. I don't know. I don't know uh -huh. him. But the story he tells is that they played uh, a song. It was helplessly hoping. I can't. I don't know what the song was, but but they sang it, and he said, "Sing it again." And they said, "Okay," because they were really digging just the two of the voices. You know, mm -hmm. they were happy. And, he, and so he, they sang it a second time, and he said, sing it again. And so they sang it the third time, and the third time he put a harmony on it. And when they finished that song, they burst out laughing. And they were banned. Oh, he went home and quit the Hollies. <laughs> wow. Wow. And yeah. they, the, like, maybe the most perfect harmonies, oh, other than the Beatles. I sure loved that, uh, that band. <gasps> I love too. Stephen. I love Stephen. I played with him at the Fillmore. You played the West or East? Uh, the real Fillmore, the one in San Francisco. Okay, well, I used to go to the real Fillmore, the well, one in where New York. York. And that's where you met Cliff, right? <laughs> I didn't meet him at the Fillmore, oh, but I. The rock, no, the Rock and Roll Cafe on Bleecker Street. Oh, okay. I, I used to book him out in the 80s, Cliff oh, Everhart. Cliff yeah. Everhart, great, Cliff. great singer songwriter, truly wonderful. I, I wrote a review of uh, his show. It's on my. I have a blog called Dada Musicata, mm -hmm. and I wrote a review of Cliff's show. After I, I, I didn't even, I'd never seen him play. Mm -hmm. And he was playing out in, at uh, Bob Stain's place, the coffee gallery in Pasadena. I went out there and saw the show, and I wrote a, went home and wrote a review and said, you want to know how it's done? Go see this guy. Yeah, he was really good. 
I and had so he seen... and I made an album together called All Wood and Doors, where we took all Doors songs and we made, did them like Crosby, Stills, and Nash. So we did acoustic versions with harmonies. And uh, John Densmore, the drummer of the Doors, and, and Robbie Krieger, the guitar player who actually wrote Light My Fire, those two guys played on it, which was. And I got to come hear you guys do oh, it at the right. caves. That's yeah. Right. You know what? Did, John didn't come that night. He, no, he came another night. He yeah, because we played out in Valley, and John came and sat in with the drums, and oh. Cliff was like, he said, I'm doing projectile sweating here. Oh. He was so. And so, and you've had all, not only all wooden doors, you've done a couple of those. Oh, yeah, I did. I, did, uh, I got together with John Bathorp, who's another great player, singer, and songwriter, and I've known him. Since 1970, and uh, and John and I did uh, the Rolling Stones. We we picked their classic stuff all before Brian had passed away, and we did an album called All Wood and Stone. And it, uh, I think XM called it the record of the year or something. They played the crap that's out fantastic. Of it. And uh, and then John and I oh and that and that's when I decided to do a, a series. So I did All Wood and Doors. I mean All Wood and Stones. And then Cliff and I did All Wood and Doors. And then John and I did All Wood and Stones too. And now Dan Navarro, if you know Dan, uh, you may know Lowen and Navarro, which was a duo, uh, and they wrote uh, We Belong for... Uh, Pat Benatar. Pat Benatar. Anyhow, Dan is a fantastic singer. Mm. It really, his voice, yeah, I hear him sing, and I think, boy, I've got, <laughs> I've got a challenge to meet that voice. Aww. He's so good. In any event, Dan and I are doing uh, All Wood and Lead. We're doing Led Zeppelin, and we have all the tunes, and I just sketched them out, and... Uh, Acoustically, I see. Yeah, acoustically. Yeah. I just came back from Holland uh, last week, and I've started uh, work on this album. Fantastic! Yeah. I can't wait. To, you guys will be. I can't wait to hear your voices blend. That's oh, it's be really fun. sweet. He's yeah. he and I sing. Well, you know, actually, he sang on a bunch of my records for years. Somebody else was telling me. Maybe it was Dan. Did you do anything with Stephen Bishop, or am I? Maybe it was Dan who brought some. Somebody well, Steve, that, yeah, Stephen. Okay. Uh, Stephen and I go back way back. Uh, like his first, like. At first, are you kidding? The first time he ever made love, it was to my wife. Wait, what? Well, except we were separated, so it wasn't, it isn't like he broke us up. Okay. But she picked him up hitchhiking and he tried to pants right off of her. Okay, well, I knew, I knew that at Is least... This rare? Maybe I shouldn't say At this. least one or two people who have, I've, have been on the road taken in the last month or two have mentioned you, and I believe it was Stephen and Dan. So, oh, so, so Stephen was on here? Ste yeah, Stephen. <laughs> Stephen yeah. did the road taken about six weeks ago. Yeah, he's at his a, house. He's a really dear old friend. I mean, 1969 or 70. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Uh, and it was something about either your first album or his first album. Oh, oh yeah, on my first album, uh, I did a song. I was the first person to record a Stephen Bishop song. There you go. Yeah, I recorded this. Uh, this is what I know. Yeah, on this album I did Every Minute. What, what's it called? Every the album. Oh, the album's called James Lee the Palmas. James Lee Stanley. There you go. And uh, and I did Every Minute, which is uh, the first I think song. that's what Stephen was telling us when he was saying who recorded his stuff. I believe yeah. you were the first one to record. Yeah, I was. And, I, I, and I, took him, I took him to everybody I knew in the business, and they all said, no, I don't think so. Mm. Well, how what did they know? How, well, you know, everybody turned on the Beatles, too. You know, Stephen like literally went door to door, and like he knocked on like Bette Midler's door, and oh, yeah. he knocked on 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 I don't oh, even. That, you said you said how did I get with Bones Howe? That's what I did. I went to, I just went the phone book, looked up music because I thought I need to make some money while I'm in college. Right. So I'll, I'll try to be a staff songwriter, 
and get a weekly fee. Right. And so I went around until I found someone who believed in me, uh, uh, who was Bones Howe. And then after Bones, I was with the E.H. Morris, which is where I met Stephen, because okay. Stephen was with E.H. Morris. Uh -huh. For three years, uh, Steve Morris, who was a, a wonderful uh, uh, musical nurturing guy, he, uh, he signed both Stephen and I as songwriters. Okay, so now let's talk about how the, the success started to happen. Um, and how you ended up opening for these incredible people, doing these incredible tours. You know, and I, I, I'm still kind of marveling at that because... How did that... I don't have any machinery for that. I, I know that I signed the deal with Wooden Nickel, and then yeah. the next day I rented a truck and I drove to Santa Cruz and moved it. <coughs> because? And, because, uh, uh, because of my second one. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, she wasn't was actually my wife, but it, just, oh, it seemed like we were there for a couple of years. So, but anyhow, she went to college up there, so I went up to be with her mm -hmm. and left Hollywood behind. Mm -hmm. And uh, and they were very upset. They were saying, you know, what about your career? And I said, well, you know, what about my sanity? Because I, mm -hmm. I really have to how, how old are you now when, you, when this is happening? 27, maybe? Okay. Yeah, 27. Okay. So I went up there, and, and then Golden called me up and he said, you know, we have a friend up there from Chicago. And I said, to who? And he said, a guy named Fred Bolander. And Fred had a, a, a book agency called Monterey Peninsula Artists. And, and so I got invited to this party and I met Fred and, uh, and we hit it off. And then he called up and he said, listen, man, I'm doing a show with Bonnie Raitt. Do you want to open up for her? And I said, aye, sure. Aye, aye. What, what year was this? Oh, God, I don't know. 78. 74, oh, uh, 75. You're freaking me out because I, I don't, can't tell you how many times I saw Bonnie in that period. I mean, I very yeah, easily... Free was in the band then. And, ay, 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 yeah. ay, so I played with her a bunch and I played with... Uh, and then Fred just just booked me a lot. I, I played with everybody. I played with Michael Murphy. I played with... Uh, I can't remember. I played with everybody. You, you, know, you, you Dionne Warwick, uh, uh, Ed McMahon. You know, <laughs> what? Those are. That's a strange one. Yeah. What do you mean was. you played with Ed McMahon? I mean, I mean, I mean, I was the opening act. <laughs> Ed McMahon had an act. Yeah, he went around. It was in Idaho, I think, or Montana. Wow. Yeah. I'll what did he do besides oh, saying, "Here's I, I Johnny"? I didn't. Stay I, you know, <laughs> in, like what did what did Ed do? I, I can't imagine Ed without Johnny. I, you know, I, I guess he talked, and he, mm -hmm. I, I don't have an idea because I wasn't. Uh, yeah, I wasn't left. interested. I was actually back then. I was, uh, I was single, and I was probably carousing. Carousing, and, carousing. and carousing was much more alluring than Ed McMahon. <laughs> God bless you, Ed. Yeah. You know where you are. I, that makes good sense to me. Yeah. So, all right. So, so you're opening for these people, but along the way, your your music is being done. You've had hits. So well, I wrote. Well, that's weird. Yeah, I I had some hits on Wooden Nickel, anyhow, uh, regional hits, you know, and uh, and then I had uh, no hits. And uh, I guess about 1983, mm -hmm. a friend of mine named Michael Jackson, not the Michael Jackson, mm -hmm. but the producer Michael Jackson, mm -hmm. he was producing Kiss, and they were doing an album, the first album without their makeup, and so he called up and he said, Hey, James. I'm producing Kiss, they're doing that with no, without any makeup. Do you have any songs? I said, I got the perfect song. He said, okay, well, when can I hear it? I said, well, I'm, I'm in the middle of demoing it. I'll get it to you as soon as I can. He said, okay. So then I called a pal of mine, Vince Malamed, and I said, Vince, we have a chance to 
you want to write a song together? And he said, yeah, because he played piano. He mm -hmm. had a, he had a kid. Oh, you hadn't written it yet. That no, was a, of course no. not. <laughs> and he also had, he had an eight-track tape machine. Okay, eight-track. You know? yeah. Oh, my. For those kids of you at home. Maybe it was a four-track. Wow. In any yeah. event, he had a machine. Mm -hmm. And so I called him and I said, listen, you want to write this song together? We'll record it in your little machine and, and we can give it to them. And uh, I said, I have an idea for what to call it because these guys are going to be doing an album without their makeup. So let's write a song called Coming Out of Hiding. Nice. And so that's what we did. And then uh, my sister uh, heard it and she said, James, I've got my little label you know, in my garage. Can I make it? And she, went, she, she had a disco hit with another song of mine called I Want to Talk About It. It was like, you know, tw top 20 in the country in the disco world. Oh. I forgot about that. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, my sister Pamela Stanley, fantastic, the greatest singer you've ever heard. Wow. And, uh, we and so, get her down here. So she, well, she lives in Virginia. So okay. uh, she had a hit with that, I'm gonna talk about it. Mm -hmm. So, and, and she started a little label in her garage in wow. Texas. And she said, do you mind if I record a thing? And I said, yeah, she went, and he said, sure, it doesn't matter. Cause they, they turned it down. Oh, Kiss turned it. The Kiss, the Kiss people turned it down. First, they were going to do it, and then uh -huh. they decided they were going to write all the tunes. Okay. So everybody who wasn't them had their songs removed. Right. So, so uh, I said, sure, go ahead. Well, it, it became a top five disco record. Jesus. And, uh, and I'm Vince, sure that's not the way you wrote it. No, no, yeah. I wrote it on acoustic guitar. But, mm -hmm. but Vince and I made a bunch of money, and uh, and the neatest thing happened. The Chan San Diego Chargers picked up the song, uh -huh. and they. They uh, they would it would became their theme song. So when they come up out of the out of the uh, locker room onto the field, they'd play "Coming Out of Hiding" nice. on, on national TV for three years. Nice. So so all these checks were rolling in, and uh, and then it's funny. I got a call from from uh, the girl that wrote the, "The Wind Beneath My Wings." Yeah. She hadn't written it yet. But she, she was a songwriter at Screen Gems, and she called me and she said, we should write something together. And I said, okay. And then I never did. And I could kick oh, myself in the that's ass. that's another one of those when opportunity knocks. Oh, listen to this one. This is ridiculous. I'm playing for the, with the Persuasions at, at Hop Sings in, in Marina Del Rey on the opening act. I go up there, I do my show. It was one of those nights where everything I said was funny. Uh -huh. Everything I said was James funny. James Lee is very funny. You probably can't tell, but... No, but you are. You are. You in are. In any event, everything I said was funny. Mm -hmm. I, I, to finish my set, I go in the dressing room. This guy comes running in. He goes, hey, man, you are amazingly funny. He said, listen, uh, 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 you know, we should talk. Here's my card. He said, I'm the opening act for the Tops and the Temps, the, the four Tops mm -hmm. and the Temptations. And I'm thinking, I've opened up for bigger acts than that. <laughs> you know? So I take his business card and I throw, throw it oh, in, no. in my guitar case. And I ignore it, you know, for, uh, no. for I don't know, six or eight oh, months. I, I, I don't know who it is, but it's going to be oh, somebody. Oh, it's going to kill you. Yeah. So this guy thinks I'm so funny and he wants me to call. And, and he's a comedian. And so I'm at the Guitar Center and I, and I have my guitar. I guess I want him to do something to it. And I open the case and there's that card. And I look at it. And the guy lives on North Gardner. Well, Gardner and Sunset is where the mm -hmm. Guitar Center is. So, so I thought, oh, well, I'll call him. And so I called the number. It's disconnected. So Jerry Weinfeld, I mean, uh, Jerry Seinfeld never got my call. <laughs> stop, stop, stop. Are you kidding me? I swear to God. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of those kick me in the face. Oh I'm telling my you, I'm not God. saying I would have been a writer on the show, but I would have had a shot, I think, you know? Wow. Event, when he decided to go out on the road, I did write, his, write the agency and say, hey, 
probably don't remember me, but but nothing wow. came of it. Although with Stephen Wright, I got to. So how did the Stephen Wright thing happen? Well, I was doing a lot of shows. Uh, Greg Perloff, who worked with Bill Graham, was used to go to UCLA and was a fan of mine. Mm -hmm. He would work for Bill Graham. And, uh, Bill Graham owned the the, the the Bill Graham. They owned the Fillmore. Owned the, the Fillmore East and West. The yeah. two. Bill Graham presents huge, yeah. huge empresarial, and uh, and he uh, would come to my shows and, and he liked me and uh, he would give me work. Wow. You know? And and one I came back from uh, Europe. Oh, and here here's the deal. I was so broke, I sublet my my apartment in Beechwood. And uh, I owed thirty thousand dollars to credit card cards. Oh. So my life was essentially over, and that was back it was eighteen percent for oh. So there was, you know, I was like, and so I had this master plan because I owed so much money that I was paying the credit cards with credit cards. Of course, you know, doing that juggling thing, and uh, and and because I still had good credit, American Express sent me a gold American Express card. Nice. So I was going to cut it in half because I thought I don't need any more trouble. But then I thought, nah, just in case trouble comes and I'm not expecting, I'll keep the card. <laughs> and then my wife, who was Dutch, went back to Holland, and uh, I was calling her on the phone, and I realized if I didn't go over there, I would lose her. So I took my gold American Express card, and I sublet my apartment so that somebody could pay the rent, and I went to Holland, and, and I paid for everything. I got it, babe, I got it. Because I figured, here's my plan, I'll come back, I'll declare bankruptcy. I'll move in with my parents. How old are you? 38. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get any ideas. <laughs> Actually, you can. You're always welcome in my home. What about me? Okay, so, so, so in any event, I come back and there's a phone call from Bill Graham. And I mean, I landed in Boston because I was playing that weekend up in mm -hmm. uh, New Hampshire. You saved the girl. Oh yeah, I saved, saved the thing. And we're still married and still in love. Mm -hmm. uh, but in any event, I... I, uh, I got the message and he said, can you be in, in uh, San Francisco for the, at the Fox Warfield on Tuesday night? I've got the perfect guy to open up for you. And I, I said, absolutely. So I, <laughs> so I played Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at the Folkway in Peterborough, New Hampshire. And then the next day I drove back in a rental car mm -hmm. to Boston and got the only flight I could get, which was a 10.30 at night flight to LA, mm -hmm. and then I had to get uh, uh, somebody to pick me up and drive me back to my house because I didn't have any cash to pay the cab. The cab guy, oh, my right. son, yeah. and, the, and I knew they wouldn't take any more. So er car. everything was literally on the plastic. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. My life was over. Yeah, and and I got back to my place and I tiptoed in and I got my some LPs and I got in my car and I drove to San Francisco. I flew all night. LA, drove to San Francisco, got there at four o'clock in the afternoon, went in and said, hi, I'm the opening act. And they said, okay, your sound check at 5.30. I said, great, where's my room? And I went, and I went to sleep because I was exhausted, I'd been awake. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then I, I, I did my sound check and then I just played my guitar until they said, you're on. And I went on and I played and I got a standing ovation. Oh, nice. And I come off stage and there's a guy standing there with curly hair and he goes, you're brilliant. And I said, thanks, who are you? And he said, I'm Stephen Wright. Nice. And I said, nice to meet you. And, and then his manager came back to the room, the restroom room and said, listen, uh, Stephen really liked you. We have five dates in California and we'd like you to be the opening act for them. And, uh, and, and also this was 
$500 as the opening act. And nice. We're, we're talking 1980, 88, no, no, 86, mm -hmm. 1986, so $500 is a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So I, sa I said, well, uh, you have five dates, now give it, Keep in mind that I just had gotten a standing ovation from a crowd that never heard of me. Mm -hmm. okay. That's huge. Yeah, huge. So, opening so, acts getting a standing ovation yeah, was unheard of. Yeah. So I said, I, and they offered me five dates. I said, I can do one, two, three, and five, but I can't do four. Now, my apartment was still landed out. Wait, why couldn't you do four? I'm telling you. Okay. I slept in my car that night because I, I didn't want to spend any money on a hotel. But I thought that if I can get a standing ovation and three more dates, I don't care who they get as an opening act for the fourth show. When I come back for the fifth show, I'll have a tour. Ah, that was so smart. And when I came back, I walked in the door and Stephen Wright said, you're my guy. And and I had three years as his opening Okay, act. I just want to say for those of you out there who are trying to figure out how to have your success and, and kind of navigate that was a brilliant marketing move. That yeah, was brilliant. I should like to think of that one more time. And I mean, to give up the 500 when you're so strapped was a very bold thing to do. I was pretty sure. I thought, because I killed that audience. I killed them. And, and, oh. and the fact of the matter is, is that Stephen, Stephen's audiences are smart. They're smart. Mm -hmm. and, and, and to tell you the truth, uh, people that are smart seem to really enjoy me. And yes. people that are not so smart don't. <laughs> well, that's a that's a better way to have it than the other way around, I think. Except for all the money. Yeah, except the, for the money that. Yeah, yeah I guess the, the Kanye West is pretty rich. You know? <laughs> yeah, this is true. Um, okay, so that's the Stephen Wright thing. So the man we shall not name, but that you also opened for. Oh well, wow, Robin Williams. How did that happen? San Francisco guy, I know. Oh, I, uh, because uh, I played. You know, remember in Huntington Beach, the Golden Bear. Okay. I'm a New Yorker. Okay. Huntington Beach, Golden Bear, great club. Everybody played there through the years. Matter of fact, Peter Tork was watching dishes there when Stephen Stills called him and said, Listen, you should go audition for this thing. They liked my look, but they didn't like my teeth. Stop. Yeah. I'm wondering if Mickey told us that story that Stephen Stills auditioned. I think I've heard that before. No, he did. He did. And, wow. and they, didn't like his, uh, they didn't like his teeth. But Stephen and, and Peter really looked a lot alike. They had the same exact they haircut. Do. Now that you same, say and it. And they had the same um, mutton chop kind yeah. of side. And so, so Stephen called him twice. And finally, Peter went in there and, and auditioned. And, and wow. got the gig. And so how did you oh, and Peter... Oh, oh, oh anyhow, okay. uh, to get back to Robin Williams. Okay, uh, we're, we're all over the place, but we have to get to the Peter story too, but let's go to Robin first. Okay, uh, uh, the, uh, the man who, who ran the Huntington Beach place, uh, Gold, the Golden Bear, mm -hmm. really liked me. And, uh, and he called me one day and he said, listen, uh, I've got a Robin coming in uh, for 11 shows. And uh, What year is this? This is at the height of Robin's career, I'm assuming. Sometime in the 80s, mm -hmm. you know? I don't know what it was. So he's be. already been more from work and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, no, yeah. He's, he's, he's already huge. He's huge. Yeah, and this was, he, he was going to go on the road. So was he, he a movie star yet? Yeah, he was an he, he, was, he was already everything. And, okay. and I don't know why he wanted to do 11 shows at the Honey, at the Golden Bear, but he mm -hmm. did. You know, like Jay Leno goes down and works at the Magic. Every single Sunday. Jimmy yeah. Brogan was here. It was opened for him for, for 26 years. Yeah. Every Sunday. Well, yeah. in any event, maybe that was it. So, so uh, I said, sure, I'd love to do that. Excuse and me one second. I just have to give a shout out to um, maybe Rick, your friend too, but 
Wendy Liebman is opening for Arsenio Hall at the uh, Comedy and Magic Club tomorrow night, the oh. 9th. So if you're in the area in Huntington Good Beach, and hi Mike, uh, then uh, go check them out. So uh, when I went down to the Golden Bear in Huntington Beach, mm -hmm. and I got there at four o'clock in the afternoon, and I went in my dressing room and closed the door and turned off the light, and I played my guitar until the sound check. And then I went back in the room and I played my guitar and sang, because I thought, I, Robin Williams was so utterly brilliant mm -hmm. that I thought I, I better be able to access whatever gifts I have just to keep the audience from killing me. You know? <laughs> I was, I was very daunted to, to, to go in front of him because I thought his audience is expecting, you know, a nuclear explosion. I'm coming out here, but first there's a folk singer. You know, so, 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 so I was pretty daunted, and, and I'm in the dark playing, and the door opens, and it's Robin Williams. Yeah. And, he, and he just kind of nanu nanu thing at me, you know, and I, I, I've been like just in the dark playing mm -hmm. music, so I was a little bewildered. And he dropped the Robin Williams persona instantly and he and he came in he stepped inside and he said are you so you're practicing and i said robin you know i've seen you work and uh, your audience is going to demand so much that i want to you know i want to make sure that whatever i've got i can access and he sat down and he said james i picked you as the opening act he said you're going to be fine and 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 then every night he came in and we'd sit down and talk before the shows. He and was, he would be, he would be just a, person. a person. And he was spectacular and um, dig this. After his death, I love that you say dig this, by the way. After, <gasps> after his death, mm -hmm. I read that he always made the opening act mm. feel good. Mm. And I realized that maybe he didn't, maybe he really didn't pick me first as the opening act. But he, but he made you feel like you did. No, I mean, he was such a magnificent human. Mm. And, and, and so talented. Mm. I, I loved him so much. Mm. I remember I was running around Lake Hollywood once. I used to run five miles a day. I was mm. doing the gate to gate on Lake Hollywood. And, and I passed him running the other way. Mm. And I said, Robin. And he stopped because instead of saying, Are you Robin Williams? You know, I went, Robin. And he realized it was somebody talking to him. And he stopped and came back and we talked. It was. He was always. Was that there. before you played with him? No, it oh, was oh. a couple of years later. Uh -huh. You know, just after, you know. Mm -hmm. But he was—he was just always gracious and always supportive. Mm -hmm. Oh, I wanted to tell you one thing about Stephen Wright mm -hmm. that, that many people don't know. Uh, uh, every time that I played—I mean, I did three years of touring, and I kept getting more and more money. They would—that's a good thing. They, you know, five hundred to seven fifty to a thousand mm -hmm. to twelve fifty mm -hmm. to fifteen hundred. You know, but by the time we played the Universal Amphitheater. I think they paid me $2,500 as the opening act. Nice. And dig this, I I wasn't drawing anybody. Steven was filling the room and they were giving me $2,500 to sing in front of him. That's really nice. And then I found out mm -hmm. that, that the Stephen Wright tour was a package deal. It was X amount of dollars against a percentage. So every time I was getting more money, Stephen would call up the agency and say, give James more money. Oh. Every time I got more money, Stephen got less. Huh? That's a mensch. He's fantastic. That's a. I'm going to reach out to him. I think he's one of my Facebook friends. He's. He I, I, I'm a huge fan. Who isn't? Do you know when I auditioned at the at at Catch a Rising Star in New York, he happened to just show up. Yeah. And uh, when I and he showed up and and um, 
uh, a few other people showed up, and, and anyway, I didn't go on until two in the morning, but that's another story. But anyway, he, I, I was in awe of him. He was just a genius. He's, he is. He's, He's an absolute... I haven't seen him perform in a long time. Well, I can tell you, when we were on the road, he said, James, I hate touring. I hate this thing. I hate flying. And uh, he said, when my money makes me X amount of money, I'm not doing this anymore. Mm. And in the third year of our tour, and we were in New Hampshire, mm -hmm. Hampton Beach, the because uh, whatever it is, the, not the casino, the Hampton Beach doesn't matter. We were in Hampton Beach, New Hampshire, and and uh, he said, James, I'm there, and I said, where? I said, my money's making me all the money I'm ever going to need. Wow. I'm not doing this. What anymore. year was that? God, '88. Yeah. Um, so that's like yeah. And so and so he stopped pursuing wow. the thing because his money made him wow. enough money, and he, and he still. You know, he still plays when he feels like it, and he and he made he wrote one movie and won an Academy Award. Wait, what? What movie did he write? He wrote a short called Trying Times. It's a wonderfully funny movie. Wow. And when he won the Academy Award, he went up on stage, and 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 he had the Academy Award for the best short, and and he went on stage and he said, "I'd like to thank my editor for cutting out that ninety minutes." <laughs> <laughs> and he left. That's sound, that's so. Stephen Wright is very droll. He was oh. like, I can't even, I can't think of one of his, but he was like all like little one-liners, and they're all brilliant. Here's, gems. here's a Stephen Wright joke. Okay, good. So I've been getting into astronomy. I had a skylight installed. People live above me are furious. <laughs> that's very Stephen Wright. Yeah, he was, he's brilliant and, and um, fast, yeah. Every, fast and droll. Yeah. And you have to really you have to really be on your toes with Stephen because he's on to the next. And oh, yeah. Every joke, every joke is no more than a minute long. Yeah. That's the deal with him. Oh, I, and most of them are much shorter than yeah, that. 30 yeah, 30 seconds to a minute. They're very short, yeah. And, and he said, James, I figured out if you're going to be on television, he said, you're very funny, but, you know, you take too long. <laughs> he said, I figured, because on television, people are not going to sit down and listen to you for three minutes to be... To, to, to get to a punchline, yeah. You know, because I'm a raconteur. Mm. I, I tell you know stories, and they have an arc, and they have a destination, and, and usually a, 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 a an arrival, a, a payoff. You know, mm -hmm. but he would tell these jokes like that. And he said, "Because in television, they're going to go like this, just going by with their remote." And so I got to hit him fast. Okay, so speaking of television, you won an Emmy Award. How did that happen? Oh, oh well, I, I, the program won an Emmy Award. Uh, okay. uh, there was a comic strip in the papers called Kathy. Uh, drawn and written by this brilliant, wonderful woman named Kathy Guy's wife. Have you ever seen Kathy, Samantha? I think it's after your time. Kathy it was, was a, a huge strip. Yeah, it was, it was in the paper. She always had a heart on her, on her sweater, and she had long, straight hair. Anyhow, Kathy... Uh, and she had a terrible love life. Yeah, Irving. In any event, she, uh, uh, she was a fan of mine, and, mm -hmm. and when, when um, Mendelssohn Melendez, who did all the Peanuts strips, for television, mm -hmm. they they signed a deal with Kathy, and she said, "Okay, but I want James Lee Stanley to do the music." And they said, "Who's that?" Mm -hmm. And then they said, oh, "We can't, we can't, uh, we can't." He's never done it before. And, and uh, I said, "Well, you know what? Uh, I'll I'll call in Jimmy Haskell, who is an utterly brilliant uh, uh, arranger, composer, and wonderful man who was great." Mm -hmm. he, he wrote the strings on uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water. Wow. He wrote all those horns on the Steely Dan records that you love. He wrote, wow. he, he, he did the actual arrangement for the theme to a summer place. The, mm -hmm. the thing, the, he wrote 
wrote that thing. Wow. Even though Percy Faith got the thing, mm. Jimmy wrote it. Jimmy wrote it. He did so much stuff. But anyhow, uh, I called Jimmy and I said, Jimmy, I have a chance to do this. Uh, and they think that I'm not capable. He said, of course you're capable. I said, I know, but they, they're saying, mm. I said, so here's what I'd like to, how about if we do it, this one together? Mm -hmm. And uh, and I said, but I'll write everything. Uh, you can write what you want, but I'll, and he said, yeah, fine. So we, I used his name, the strength mm -hmm. of his name, he signed me to the to the program. Mm -hmm. And then uh, and then I wrote all the music for it wow. and, and gave Jimmy a, a large a portion, no, and a large portion of the money. Oh, yeah, because <laughs> I wouldn't have the gig without right, it. You know? Right, right, right. I mean, it was yeah, no problem here. I was happy to. Ten percent of a, of something is better than ninety percent of nothing. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And and so then uh, I did the next two by myself, but the first one won an Emmy. It was a primetime CBS show called Kathy. And how and how about the Cable Ace Award? What was that about? Uh, a comedian friend of mine named Tom Parks did. Uh, he hired me to do a, a, a documentary on diabetes because he, he's a diabetic mm -hmm. and uh, and that's his charity, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and I did the, and I guess they liked the music on that and then he said, I'm doing this uh, this HBO special. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess it won an Emmy. Excuse me, it won a Cable Ace Award mm -hmm. and I did the music on it, so. Okay, so now the, 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 the thing of yours that stands out for me the most. Cause and I do my own hair, too. I do it all. <laughs> okay, so now how did you meet Tom Rob Tom Robbins, who wrote um, Even Cowgirls Get the Blues and Still Life of the Woodpecker, also yeah. another one of my favorite books. Yes. Um, I, I, in that book. In Still Life? In Still Life. Tom and I had gone to Cuba together for three weeks. Yeah. And, and when that book came out, I, I called him and I said, Tom, there's, there's things in here that I said. There's like... Paragraphs of, of that are my I said it and he said James when you're friends with an author you're all grist for our mill. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Samantha, these are books that you should absolutely check out. They were my favorite books when I was check out Jitterbug Perfume, which I think is is the most that's the that's the most accessible of all of his books. Oh, even Cowgirls Get the Blues is great though. But after, but at, but that book you then you can read all the others because he's mm -hmm. he's uh, he's very spontaneous mm -hmm. and. And uh, flowery, you know, he, he puts a lot of it into there. And and if you're used to reading, uh, you know, Jersey Kozinski or something, if you know Jersey Kozinski, I do. Okay, you know, how, I mean, his his stuff is like that. Well, the use of that, yeah. Tom Tom takes as much time as he wants, and he writes <laughs> he writes his books by hand. He has a oh big yellow pad, and he writes a sentence, and then he says it out loud. And if he doesn't like the way it sounds when he says it, he scratches it out and he rewrites it. So every, I say everything out loud too. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that's how he writes his books. Mm -hmm. And they, and Except he I do them, it on a computer. He writes them longhand. You know? Mine are Tom Robbins. Anyhow, so uh, he he has this incredible quote that is in the beginning of even Cal Garza get the blues. But okay, so how did that friendship start? Uh, a, a lady that I, a dear friend uh, from uh, San Francisco, Leslie Miller, was. Uh, she and I share a love of books, you know, we made love of books. And, and uh, she and I have been friends for, God, 50 years. And she had said, James, there's this book you have to read. Mm -hmm. And so I, she gave me another Roadside Attraction, which was mm -hmm. Tom's first book. Mm -hmm. and, and I loved it, I, mm -hmm. I loved it. I loved it so much that I, when I did my next radio interview, instead of talking about my album, I talked about Tom's book mm -hmm. and, and how everybody should read this. And, uh, and then I gave the book to the, D, the, the DJ because, mm -hmm. and so then I went out and bought another copy. Well, I ended up buying 
30 copies of that book. Oh my God. And then I finally bought a hardbound because I thought, I'm not giving this away anymore. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I kept talking about it. And when I played in Seattle at the university, uh, after the show, this guy walked into the, the, the dressing room. It looked like Doris Day with a mustache. <laughs> and, and, uh, and he had Doris's hairdo, too. You know, bangs. And, and, in any event, he, he said, uh, I said, yeah. He said, uh, I really enjoyed the show. I said, thank you very much. Uh, I'm James. He said, yes, I know. He said, I'm Tom Robbins. And I'm like, well, nice to meet you. I said, you know, I bet he said, I know. I, I have, it's come through the grapevine that you're my PR guy. Wow. Because <laughs> the book didn't, it didn't really sell yeah. anything. It's a magnificent, wonderfully. Although I think even Cowgirls. No, that was I the best seller. That, that did. No, yeah, no, that but, did. But very well, but in other words, yeah. I went back and read that after I read Cowgirls. Yeah, see, that was, I read each yeah. book as it came out. Right. And, uh, and, and so Tom said, you should come up to La Conner. And I said, well, this is my last show. I don't, I don't have to go back to Santa Cruz, you know, until uh, Thursday or Friday. And he said, well, come up. So I, I went up and stayed with him in, in uh, La Conner. And, you know, we drank tequila and we took mescaline and we, you know. What years was, what, when was this? Oh, boy. You know, it must have been the 70s, mm -hmm. 75, mm -hmm. something like that. That's when I was reading him, probably. In any event, we, we you know we got high, we chased women, we drank too much. We, we had like three or four blotto days, and then uh, and then I went back to Santa Cruz, and I guess the next year he came. He and his son Fleetwood came and stayed with me for about two weeks, and we went crazy. We and uh, we had gone to uh, Great America, and we went through it a hundred miles an hour, you know. And then he called me and said, "Listen, I want to uh, I'm going to go to Cuba, and let's let's do what we did in the thing." Let's do a trip like that to Cuba. And I said, well, I've never been to Cuba. So we applied for visas and we flew in a Russian. In those days, it wasn't an easy 1975, thing to go to. Yeah, that it was, was pretty tricky. Yeah. It was an a, a Aeroflot uh, mm -hmm. uh, thing. And all the flight attendants had, had stockings on, like industrial strength hose stockings mm -hmm. on, and hairy legs. <laughs> it's really nice. an odd look to see stockings mm. and hair. It's mm. just not a, not a good look. That's quite a friendship. That's like you're on the road. That's like your Jack Kerouac like little Matter of fact, deal, right? When when we went, uh, when we flew there, we had we for some reason the plane we flew to Montreal and the plane couldn't go any farther. We had to take a bus. But I, I was reading on on the road by Kerouac mm -hmm. then. So I was sitting on this bus. We're going from from uh, uh, Montreal to Quebec or Quebec to Montreal. That mm -hmm. was it. That's yeah. So that's the way it was. And I'm sitting on this bus and I'm reading on the road and the guy sitting next to me is Tom Robbins. That's very surreal. I thought, this is, this is strange, you know? Anyhow, he's been a wonderful friend and, and uh, a, a great man. And he's married to a spectacularly wonderful woman. But when I played up there last year, uh, I stayed with them. And she was, she was like beyond gracious. She made me feel so special. I really love her. Alexa, his wife. That's good, lovely. They're really good people. Well, when he comes down to LA, I want to grab him. I want you to introduce. I want to at least meet him. I adore him. I, well, I, I, I have yeah, such love for him. It's tricky because I mean, he's he's certainly come to town and not told me. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I can believe that from him. Okay, and so how did you meet Peter Tork? How did that? Um, how did that uh, relationship? The shadows in Virginia Beach when mm -hmm. I was sixteen. There was a. Oh my God! You've known him since you were sixteen. Yes, there was a, a band called the. 
Phoenix Singers, mm -hmm. and and they had uh, a guitar player and a banjo player behind them. Mm -hmm. And Lance Wakeman played the guitar, mm -hmm. and and Peter Tork played the banjo. And uh, I've and, seen him play the banjo. You know, and, and we hit it off, and and uh, on the Monday night open mic because we mm -hmm. were there for two weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, we we did some songs together, and and we were friends. And then uh, he was he got me my my Gibson guitar that I still have, mm -hmm. 1941 J50. It's wow. beautiful, fifty bucks in a pawn shop. He mm -hmm. called me. He said, "Listen, man," and I so I, I said, "Yes, buy it." And I gave him fifty bucks for the guitar, and then uh, that was in Virginia Beach in the summer. Mm -hmm. In the winter, Virginia Beach closed down entirely. Mm -hmm. Just, and I was playing music down there. So I, I opened my own club in Norfolk. Wow. Uh, a 200-seater place called the Folk Ghetto. Mm -hmm. and, and I talked to people who own the shadows into loaning me their tables and chairs. 50 tables and 200 chairs they loaned me for the whole winter until I could get enough money to buy my own mm -hmm. stuff there. They loaned a 17-year-old kid 50 tables and 200 chairs so that I could start my own nightclub. And I was in high school and I used, to be, I used to be able to get out of class to go down because I was taking delivery. They'd say, yeah, go ahead, you know. Wow. And I was on TV and the, the club was a big, Emmy Lou Harris played there when she, wow. when she wasn't famous. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I had the full ghetto for a while and then I joined the Air Force. And, the, and so you and Peter though, oh, oh, you I'm sorry. Okay, that's okay. When I opened the club, mm -hmm. I called Peter in New York mm -hmm. and I said, I want you to come down and do and play for me. And was he already wonky? No, no, this is way before that. Okay. And, and he t told me later that I, I gave him the first gig he ever had was Peter Tork, like headlining a, a room because he wow. was playing basket houses in New York, you know, where you play a set right, and you right. pass on the, the basket and they, they throw change in there. Right, right, right. Yeah, so he was doing that and I called him and, and because uh, I sent him a, a, a one-way ticket to, you know, because I was going to send a round trip because I was afraid that, you know, I mean, musicians, I was afraid that he would just cash the fill, the ticket and then not come. <laughs> <laughs> so I sent him a one-way ticket and he flew down to Norfolk and he stayed at our house, at my parents' house. Jesus. And how much later was it that the monkeys happened? Oh, gosh. Two years. And then, but then you guys collaborated. Oh, way after that. Yeah. How did that happen? What was that about? Well, you know, I started my own label. When, when I tried to get a record deal for like 10 years mm -hmm. uh, or seven years, something like that, and I couldn't do it. Actually, it was six years, okay? Couldn't do it. And and uh, this one label, the guy told me, well, James, you know, we, we really like what you do, but we did some market research and we think we could only sell 50,000 records and that's just not enough for us to get involved. And so, no, we're not signing you. And I went, because I thought, this guy's loved me when he was at RCA, mm -hmm. when he was at you know, Capitol, he's, mm -hmm. you know, and now he's got this. In any event, he didn't sign me. And I got in my car, I'm driving back to Santa Cruz, and I thought, wow, 50,000 albums isn't enough because they wouldn't even make their money back from, because here's the way it works. The record label charges, pays for everything, and then out of the pittance that they give you for signing the record, you have to pay back every dime they spent. So 50,000 records wouldn't pay back w how much they spent. So so I'm driving home and I thought, boy, 50,000 records isn't enough. And then I realized that if, if I started my own label, 
Well, wait. For, for them, if I made 50,000 records for them, I would make about 75 cents a record. Mm -hmm. So that would be about $37,000 gross mm -hmm. that they would make, not enough for them. But if I made the record for my own label and I sold 50,000 copies at, back then, $10 a record, I'd make half a million dollars. I thought, in debt, up to my ass, half a million dollars, start my own label. And I never looked back after that. And here they are. Yep, and they're all in stores and they're in every one of those. Uh, I have a distributor who's wonderful and I have, I'm in every, every downloading thing. I, I, I'm one of the artists being screwed by Pandora and, <laughs> and Spotify on a daily basis mm -hmm. because they pay so little. Mm -hmm. And they say we're paying you know, for the profits, except that they're paying. The average, is Pandora the one in England? Yes. The average employee at Pandora makes $175,000 a year. And they're screwing all the musicians. Well, if you get, if you get, you know, 10,000 plays on, on Pandora, you, you're liable to make two or $300. Oh my God. So what's the best place for people to buy your music other than your website? Oh, oh you can get it on Amazon. You can get it at, uh, from Apple. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can get it in, in, uh, in the six stores that are left in America that actually sell <laughs> hard copy. You know, mm -hmm. or you can come to one of my shows and uh, and, uh, and I'll sell you a CD and I'll sign it. If I don't sign it, they cost more. <laughs> so, so James, before we before we go out with the song, what is there anything that you haven't done? Is there anything you're still looking forward to? Is there something that that's yes? What I remember when the Beatles Abbey Road came out, mm -hmm. and I called a friend of mine in New York City. And I had the record playing in the background mm -hmm. in my house. And when he answered the phone, it was playing in his house. Oh, stop. You know, and, and we both laughed about it and realized that, that their music was probably playing mm -hmm. 24 hours a day somewhere around the world. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I would love, not for the money, but just, just for the, the idea that, that some piece of music that I created would be heard by everybody. Mm. You know, I'd like that to happen. I, I believe that you can make that happen. I think so too. I totally believe that. So I'm gonna live it up now. <laughs> so live it up now and treat us to, uh, treat oh, us yeah. to a song. Yeah, and I, I wanna thank you so much for, for coming out and doing this. And I loved every second of it. And um, James Lee Stanley, uh, you can, jameslystanley.com, is that your, jameslystanley.com, all of his music, uh, he's amazing. And if you have the opportunity to see him live, which you do 100 days of the year, uh, check out his touring schedule, because he's fantastic Yes, live. please come, bring 500 of your very closest <laughs> friends. This is a song uh, inspired by my wife. She came in for after LA traffic. I can't stand it, I hate this place of traffic, let's get, let's get out of here. And I, and I was working on this chord progression and I said, did you say let's get out of here? And she said, yes, we have to get out of here. I'm just crazy. I can't stand anymore. And I said, you know, I appreciate your angst, but I said, because that's, can you hold on to that? Because this is a great idea for a song. I just want to write down what you're saying. And so, <laughs> so she left. <laughs> and I wrote the tune. It's called Let's Get Out of Here. Let's get out.
it would be so fine to leave it all behind. Let's just get out of here. We'll make up for being here with Thanks. us. Thank Come you and see so, me. Thank you, and go see him. Uh, Samantha, thank you for working the camera. And for all of you out there, we'll see you next Wednesday on The Road Taken with Jack McGee. See you then.